Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Lab leak. President Biden demands a COVID origin investigation. Beijing's not happy. Big oil, big toil. Exxon, Chevron and Shell told to do more to protect the planet. Wind beneath its wings. America's newest airline gets ready for takeoff. And... Singapore made a literal song and dance of its vaccine drive. But is it working? It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Definitely. A warm welcome to all our first movers around the globe. Great to be with you for another busy show. Coming up, the Foreign Minister of Singapore on managing COVID and cancelling this summer's planned World Economic Forum meeting. And breezing by first move, the CEO of new low-cost digital savvy airline Breeze Airways. And we'll be discussing cryptocurrency strategy with the CEO of MicroStrategy, Michael Saylor. Remember, he was one of the first proponents of Bitcoin on the balance sheet and also the architect of the recent Musk versus Bitcoin miners meeting. All that just ahead. But first, U.S. stocks trying to move higher as investors digest the latest U.S. economic data. This past week's U.S. jobless claims hitting a fresh pandemic lower line, as you can see, just above that 4,000 person level. It's still high, but as I say, a pandemic low. Fed Chair, Fed Vice Chair, meanwhile, Randall Qualls, the latest central bank member to suggest it might be time to discuss slowing or tapering, as the word we use is called, stimulus support. Discussing less support, though, isn't the same as doing it, of course, and perhaps the feared taper tantrum has already happened when yields, bond yields, took a big leg higher earlier this year. In other words, less stimulus may be already factored in, at least as far as the bond markets are concerned, but persistently higher prices isn't. China warning that industrial profits slowed in April due to the soaring commodity prices, which Beijing, of course, has vowed to tame. All this as the US and China hold informal trade talks with prices as well as the pandemic in focus. Let's get to the drivers and an origin order. US President Joe Biden has told intelligence agencies to ramp up efforts to determine where COVID came from. He's given them 90 days to investigate. The fresh pressure comes after reports that Wuhan lab workers were taken ill as early as November 2019. John Harwood joins us now. John, great to have you with us. Perhaps no surprise on this in light of the ongoing and brewing criticism of the World Health Organization's investigation that Chinese scientists helped to write, of course. What do we make of this decision and the investigation to come? Well, I think, Julia, this has been building over time. Remember, Mm. from the outset of the COVID pandemic, it was clear that the Chinese were not providing transparency and visibility into what 
was going on. Remember, they kept uh, American scientists from the CDC out of uh, Wuhan uh, as they were offered to come assist early in the pandemic. But then we got caught up in the pandemic and uh, President Trump, who was trying to make a trade deal, uh, praised uh, uh, Chinese uh, handling of this. Then later, when it got worse, he uh, went after China. But uh, more than anything else, American politicians uh, at the state and federal level were caught up in trying to deal with the pandemic. Now that we're emerging from it, now that we've seen that international investigation that was plainly uh, overly influenced by China and China's uh, obstruction of, of visibility, now the pressure is mounting for a more transparent look at this. And so um, uh, uh, President Biden responded to that pressure yesterday by making public the uh, disagreement within the intelligence community from a review that had been underway since he uh, became president. And now he's trying to ramp up that review and say we want to get more information uh, and see if we can come to a firmer conclusion about what exactly happened. Yeah, um, there will be those that look at this and say it's just way too late. If the World Health Organization's investigation was too late to establish facts about what happened, then this investigation is late, but at least it's coming now. Obviously, Beijing's response is uh, punchy. The Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson saying this fully shows that the U.S. does not care about facts and truth at all and is not interested in serious scientific origin tracing, but wants to use the pandemic to engage in stigmatization and political manipulation and shift blame. Not auspicious timing, John, for when the beginning of trade talks take place, at least the beginnings of the two nations coming back together and working out what to do about the existing challenges, of course, handed over from the Trump administration. It's not at all auspicious, and it reflects the stakes for China. If it, if it actually emerges that what happened here, uh, and there's a significant um, uh, belief among some who've looked at this closely that this is what happened, if it was incompetence and poor uh, protocols at a Chinese lab that was exploring the coronavirus, that is a significant blow to the prestige of China uh, given the immense worldwide consequences of this pandemic. Uh, and so they have a lot of interest in trying to obscure the origins of this, and it is going to be a challenge. They may have engaged in the scientific uh, equivalent of obstruction of justice by get, getting rid of some of the samples that would tell us more about this. Uh, and that will, in fact, uh, uh, flavor, color uh, the trade talks that uh, the administration is um, uh, in the process of undertaking and and the administration may be uh, reluctant to remove some of those tariffs even if they think they're uh, th they have not been uh, particularly beneficial in terms of altering the relationship it will be more difficult for them to remove them the longer china drags its feet and the longer they obstruct yeah can't separate any of these issues john harwood that's politics thank you for that Okay, Facebook responded to the news of the investigation into the pandemic's origins. The firm will no longer remove posts on the site that claim COVID-19 was man-made. Brian Stelter joins us live. Brian, great to have you with us. I mean, this is extraordinary. If I were talking about Thanks. this yesterday, I was a conspiracy theorist. And now on Facebook, I'm perfectly legit. That is the message from Facebook, and it shows how murky the world of misinformation and disinformation can be. Uh, sometimes these incredibly complex scientific issues cannot be summarized by a simple single fact check. And yet last year there were attempts 
to fact check. There were attempts to debunk theories when, when this was really about a murky, unknown, unproven, unclear area, an unclear subject that Facebook and other platforms were trying to make clear. Here's the statement from Facebook overnight that explains this change in policy. They say, in light of ongoing investigations into the origin of COVID-19 and in consultation with public health experts, we will no longer remove the claim that COVID is man-made from our apps. We are continuing to work with health experts to keep pace with the evolving nature of the pandemic and regularly update our policies as new facts and trends emerge. Look, I think Facebook and other platforms were coming at this with good intentions, trying to weed out actual disinformation, trying to remove actual conspiracy theories from their platforms, especially in those very scary days in the spring of 2020. However, we can see in this situation, in this instance, how difficult it can be to be arbiters of truth, especially when the truth really isn't known and it's not actually fact-checkable, Julia. Yeah, it's so tough, isn't it? And you risk breaking trust with people who now look at this and say, hey, we were silenced and we were censored and hey, we were right all the time, or at least there wasn't such a black and white on this and there is a grey area. It is a huge challenge and I agree with you. This shows it. Although I have to say the sceptics will look at this and say Facebook has dragged its feet in the past and it was completely on the front foot in light of the news of this investigation because it means they have to do less work, at least on this point. Right, that's right, because they won't be removing the content. Yeah. Uh They also cite public health experts. They say they're speaking with experts on this. But again, the experts aren't always right either. You know, this this is a a situation, a pandemic that defies simple black and white rules. uh, And that makes it even more challenging for these big tech platforms that increasingly are the arbiters of truth, whether they want to be or not. Yeah. Super, super tough. Pandora's box. Brian Stelter. Great to have your wisdom. Thank you. At least two ExxonMobil directors have been ousted after a battle with an activist investor. The vote is being held as a landmark in the climate change battle and comes as a Dutch court orders Shell to cut carbon emissions more aggressively. Matt Egan is here with more. I don't think we can understate how massive, massive what happened yesterday is, not just for ExxonMobil, but for the entire sector. Start there, Matt, because this is going to mean fundamental changes now, I think, that ExxonMobil has to take to do more to address its efforts on investing in more renewable energies rather than fossil. Yeah, Julia, that's right. I mean, this was a brutal day for big oil and a momentous one for the pro-climate campaign. I mean, let's think about what just happened with ExxonMobil. Engine number one, a hedge fund that did not even exist a year ago, just scored a major victory over America's largest and most powerful oil company. And we know that some of these uh, these board fights are sometimes they're, they're, they're driven by uh, demands for the company to uh, return more money to shareholders or to you know cut costs. This one really was largely about Exxon dragging its feet on the climate crisis. And so that's why this is a key milestone. It's the first proxy battle at a major U.S. company where the case for change was really all about this shift away from fossil fuels. And, you know, it's not just about these board seats. Uh, we know that 
that engine number one has won two. Uh, it's too close to call on the other two, so they could end up having won all four. We don't know yet, but we do know that a majority of Exxon shareholders, they backed a proposal calling for the company to be more transparent about how its lobbying activities align with the Paris Climate Agreement. That's a big deal. Now, climate was clearly um, the elephant in the room at this virtual Exxon uh, shareholder meeting, uh, but let's not forget, I mean, Exxon has been struggling financially. They, they were sort of vulnerable to a rebellion. I mean, this is a company that was uh, the world's largest uh, just as recently as 2013 by market value, but it's lost nearly $200 billion in market cap since then. Uh, it was kicked out of the Dow last summer. It has rebounded this year, but clearly it has been struggling. The other thing, Julia, is you know we also saw significant news at the Chevron annual meeting shareholders, they supported a proposal calling for Chevron to cut uh, carbon emissions, including at its uh, products, at some of its products like gasoline. That is a very big deal as well. I, I think that these votes, you know, they do send a clear message. Shareholders are demanding that all companies, including U.S. fossil fuel companies, take the climate crisis seriously. I, I think the big takeaway is, you know, get real or, or get out of the way. You know, I can only imagine the amount of money Exxon spent trying to fight that as well. We're talking millions of dollars, I'm sure, which is why this is also um, pivotal. But I agree with you. There is a brewing sense that shareholders, therefore the boards and the courts, of course, are now all coming together and saying things have to change. And if financially that costs you, so be it, because the time is nigh. And that's what happened for all Dutch Shell in a, in a Dutch court as well yesterday. Yeah, Julia, that, that's right. In the, in the Netherlands, the court has ordered Shell uh, to move faster than it had planned to cut emissions. They're saying that Shell must slash its CO2 emissions by 45 percent from um, by 2030. That's off of 2019 levels. This is a very big deal because it's the first time that a court has ruled a company must comply with the Paris Climate Agreement. They're also saying uh, that these emissions must include Shell's products, which again is a big deal. Those are known as scope three emissions. The court said that Shell's emissions, you know, they pose a very serious threat to the citizens of the Netherlands and that the company has a responsibility here. Now, investors, Julia, you know, they took this news in stride. I don't think we saw any dramatic moves in, in Shell's stock price. Um, so it is possible that this is very important from a legal standpoint, from a historical precedent standpoint, but it may not have a huge practical impact for Shell, at least not right away, because the company, of course, is going to appeal. But there's no doubt that this ruling is going to spark copycat efforts in courts around the world against fossil fuel companies and mining companies, for that matter. And all of this is coming after the influential International Energy Agency. Just last week, they put out that report calling for the world to stop drilling oil and gas. All of this is a very big deal, Julia. Yeah, cut all fossil fuel investment. He was on our show talking about it and it struck a chord with me, certainly. And um, yeah, Matt, while they appeal, build a plan in case you lose. Matt Egan, thank you so much for that. OK, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Nine people in California have died following another U.S. mass shooting. Authorities say a rail yard employee opened fire on the facility before taking his own life on Wednesday. Investigators are still trying to determine a possible motive. The European Union has started discussing new economic sanctions against Belarus. It comes days after Belarusian officials forced a passenger plane to land in Minsk and arrested a dissident on board. EU foreign ministers say they want to target financial transactions and some of the country's most lucrative sectors.
Okay, so to come here on First Move, Singapore turns to pop to boost its vaccine drive. We speak to its foreign minister and easy breezy. A new low-cost airline bets it can navigate aviation's COVID-19 headwinds. We speak to the CEO. That's all up next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and to Singapore, injecting a healthy dose of disco into its vaccination drive. 65% of the population is yet to receive even one dose. And so the government is harnessing the persuasive power of pop to inspire them. And me, Rosie. Everybody, it's time to vaccinate. Faster, No time to waste. But you are easy, confirm, say. Rosie, come on, be brave. The vaccine is not anyhow wet. And against COVID, it will protect. Singapore, don't wait and see. When again, you're shot. Joining us now is Vivian Balakrishnan. He's Singapore's foreign minister. Minister, fantastic to have you on First Move. I bet that's the most unique way you've ever been introduced to do an interview. <laughs> yes, but I have to say. It's great. it's great to see you, Julia. I, I watched that and I absolutely loved it. Um, what can I say? Talk to me about plans to get more people vaccinated using this and other methods, of course, too. Well, it's corny, but it's effective. Loved it. It certainly got, <laughs> certainly got the message out there and got, got attention. Now, I mentioned that around two thirds of people have yet to receive a vaccine. And there has been at least some degree of speculation that perhaps Singapore is looking to use the UK model, perhaps vaccinate people with one dose and have a bigger gap between the second dose. Is that being considered just to get more people vaccinated quicker? Well, actually, we've already decided to do that. Our key focus now is to roll out vaccination as quickly as possible. In fact, we've just aimed to double the pace of vaccination. Right now, as of today, about 38% of all Singaporeans have received the first dose. In terms of receiving two doses, it's about 29%, so about a third of our population, which is not bad. The main limiting factor really is the supplies. Um, In terms of our infrastructure to deliver jabs into arms, all that's all in place. I'm also very glad to say that we don't have significant vaccine hesitancy. And you just watched that rather corny video. It's a way of just getting people's attention, explaining it in a humorous way, and yet a very serious message that this is life-saving and this is the way we need to get out of this box that COVID-19 has trapped us in for the last one and a half years. And we certainly all feel it. And I refuse to call it corny, by the way. I love that video. Um, okay, great. How, I'll let them know. How, <laughs> thank you. How quickly can you get those supplies? You mentioned it. This is not a problem of vaccine hesitancy. This is simply having the supplies available. What can you tell us and to tell those Singaporeans watching how quickly they can hope to get either their first dose or, or their, perhaps their second in the future? Well, right now, we've actually opened the vaccination program to all Singaporeans who are 40 and above. And our next step is that we're going to offer vaccination to our school students, the teenagers, following which it will be open season for everyone in Singapore. So all this is going to happen within the next two months or so. So watch this space. You're going to see a great acceleration. 
But it's worth taking a step back and to ask why we're in such a hurry. Okay. First point is that COVID-19, unfortunately, is a permanent resident in humanity. It's endemic. It's not going to go away ever. Second point, and this is one which we're getting through, in fact, in Singapore right now, is that variants will continue to evolve and will continue to challenge us. The only thing in the long term is to make sure that the population has immunity at sufficient levels. And there are only two ways to achieve that. You either get infected, in which case there's a real risk of mortality, as we've seen in other parts of the world, or vaccination. So what we're trying to do right now is double down on vaccination, keep public education going, make sure facts and not misinformation are available, and then to be able to get on in the next phase with living with this virus, which is never going to go away completely. So that's the strategy. The rest of it is execution. It's really about logistics. It's about planning. It's about communicating. It's persuading, reassuring, and so on and so forth. And sometimes it's about tough decisions. And, and you've done that in the last 24 yes. hours. You've suspended the Singapore-Hong Kong travel bubble. You've also in recent days made the decision to cancel the World Economic Forum, Davos being held in, in August in, in Singapore. Is this all out of an abundance of caution? It is an abundance of caution. But I think it's better to lean on that side and to maintain credibility, to maintain that reputation for reliability and trust. You know, I mean, I, I can't overstate the case for maintaining trust. Because again, if you project, say, six months from now, in six months' time, the United States would have had the majority of your population vaccinated. It will join countries like Israel and the rest of it. Singapore, we will certainly be in that league as well. The question then, as you open up the global economy, is how will travel arrangements resume? Now, first point I would make with respect here is that we're not going to go back to pre-2020 in the next year or even two. It's going to take time. Second point is that as countries reach the safer shores post-vaccination, I think you'll see some stratification in terms of the travel arrangements that will be possible between countries or areas which are relatively safer. And we want to make sure we're in that group. The third point is to understand that this virus is a smart, sneaky virus, and the situation can vary, can fluctuate very, very rapidly. I don't particularly like bubbles because if you think about it, by definition, bubbles are fragile. Bubbles can expand and collapse very, very quickly. So we need to be ready to accept that these will be the arrangements going forward in the next one or two years. Things will be volatile and arrangements will always be subject to change. Minister, in light of everything that you just said, do you still feel confident sending your athletes to the Tokyo Olympics? Clearly, Japan is wrestling with what to do with the Olympics. They're still going ahead at this stage. Do you think a decision needs to be made about perhaps postponing a game, perhaps cancelling it, particularly given well, everything you just said and the decisions you're making for your nation and your people? Well, clearly, we'll have to see what the situation is like closer to the date. But let me say this. I do have confidence in the Japanese administration. They know what they're doing, and I'm sure they will do their best to make sure that if they proceed, that all our athletes will be safe. So as of now, we are prepared. 
and we'll take all the necessary precautions. And obviously, in the case of the Singapore delegation, I mean, you know that we will be vaccinated as well. Yes. And in addition to that, we'll take all the other necessary precautions. I mean, mask wearing, social distancing, uh, all the, the measures that you have to take to make sure you're not in high risk environments. So precautions can be taken. The point I'm trying to make is that you've got to accept that this will be a world where you need to be flexible. You will have to take a risk-based approach. It can't be a binary yes, no. It, you know, it's simple, but it's, that's not the way the world is going to be. This is our life now, and we have to accept it, and we have to deal with it and, and get on yes. with our lives too. Um, Foreign Minister, yes. I agree. Quick question, because in the last 24 hours, the US administration is launching an investigation into the origins of COVID. Do you support that investigation? Well, let me take a step back. The origin of COVID-19 is of major significance, both scientific and public health. Second point was we do need all the facts. And on this score, transparency, radical transparency if need be, would be very helpful. The third point is that we should try to avoid politicizing this, this question. So much of the tragedies and un unnecessary suffering of the last one and a half years, frankly, has been because the responses have been politicized. So I hope, you know, and speaking as a doctor myself, mm. I hope that these very important scientific and public health questions can be dealt with transparently, openly, fairly, and in a spirit which adds to human knowledge and makes our world safer rather than gets caught in political polemic. But let's wait and see. I mean, clearly we are not privy to all the facts yet, and we will have to see where the facts lead us to in due time. Minister, if we take the politics out of it, and very quickly, is China capable yes. of, I'll quote you, radical transparency? I hope so. I Look, the Chinese administration is a smart administration and both for their own public health domestically, as well as their reputation internationally, I'm sure they are fully committed to making sure that both they and the rest of the world get to the bottom of this mystery. So I would cut them some slack and let's judge on the basis of facts and let's try to be as impartial, in fact, as scientific as possible. And uh, so that's, that's what I hope, but only time will tell. Facts first and the science always. Yes. So it's always a pleasure to have you on. And please don't forget to uh, thank whoever produced the video. We loved it. I will. <laughs> I'll certainly convey that. Singapore. Take care, Julia. Stay safe. Thank you. You too. We'll speak soon. Thank you. OK, we're going to take a break. Up next, protecting the climate in a climate of crypto craze. We meet the CEO tackling the issue of energy use when it comes to mining digital currencies. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Thursday. Tech is pretty flat, but the rest of the market trying to build on Wednesday's gains as fresh corporate news backs up the strong growth scenario. Take a look at what we're seeing for Airbus, currently up more than 8% in European trading. The jet maker is upping production as demand improves. Airbus saying the aviation recovery has begun. Boeing also gaining. Airbus's arch rival has agreed to pay $17 million in U.S. civil penalties 
to settle 737 jetliner safety issues. Boeing also agreeing to take fresh corrective actions to beef up aircraft safety. Clearly, uh, they were expecting something slightly larger there. Okay, now to the world of cryptocurrencies. We talk about this a lot. Here's just a quick look at the price of Bitcoin over the past 12 months. As you well know, and we've discussed at endless lengths, the last few weeks in particular have been volatile, to say the least. And it took a little bit of a hit late Wednesday after Iran announced a temporary ban on mining because of the strain it puts on the electricity grid. Now, our next guest has just hosted a meeting between Elon Musk and the top Bitcoin miners in North America, who've now agreed to form a council to put sustainability first. Michael Saylor, the CEO of MicroStrategy, joins us now. Michael, it's always fantastic to have you on the show. We can talk about that. Just put it into perspective. What do we need to understand about some of the choppiness that we've seen in the last three weeks or so? You know, Bitcoin is maturing as an asset class. So if you look at it over the past 15 months, the liquidity in Bitcoin is up by a factor of seven, 700 percent. The price is up by 700 percent. On uh, on May 18th, $13.5 billion in the spot market traded on the Binance exchange and the price closed 7x more than it was on Black Thursday, uh, which was the biggest trading day of 2020. So Bitcoin, uh, the question has always been, will institutions embrace it? They have embraced it. And although although you can write a negative headline, if you just focus upon the price movement between Saturday of one week and Tuesday of the next week, if you actually look out over a 12 month time period, the story is 700 percent increase in liquidity and 700 percent increase in price. You're saying uh, volatility is the price you pay for investing in nascent technology. Yeah, we, we either can have uh, stable stagnation or we can have vitality accompanied with volatility. And so, yeah, there's some volatility, but but uh, the assets perform 10x better than equity for a decade and 100x better than gold for a decade. And so I'd much rather have the volatility and and the vitality that comes with it. It's a longer term investment, because I guess for most people, they can't take that level of volatility. Their fund performance can't take that level of volatility. But if you look at it over a longer term horizon, the return relative to other assets, be it bonds or equities, is better. That's your message. You know, Jeff Bezos had conviction in Amazon and Amazon had massive volatility over the 20 years. And yet he never wavered in his belief. And I think that Bitcoin is the same thing. It's a belief in a digital monetary network that's going to empower billions of people with economic freedom around the world. And if we pay the price of some volatility on that journey, it's a small price to pay. You know, there will be those that, that look at this and say, but give me give me the investment case relative to other next generation cryptocurrencies in that regard. What's superior about Bitcoin protocol relative to others? Bitcoin is is the dominant crypto asset network. And if you want a long duration asset that's going to last for 100 years, you need to completely decentralize it and make it permissionless. And you need to also thermodynamically embed it in the firmament of the world. And so the, the architecture of Bitcoin ensures that it will be embedded in the reality of the laws of physics because it uses energy. And it also ensures that it will be politically supported because there are actually facilities and political jurisdictions that are supported by those governments. And in the absence of the Bitcoin mining operations, which provide security to this asset, 
we wouldn't have the political support, nor will we have uh, the link to physical reality and thermodynamic soundness necessary for us to make long-term bets over the course of years and decades. It's a long time since I studied thermodynamics. I was just trying to process what, what that means in terms of in terms of Bitcoin. But you use the word dominant here. Do you mean just in terms of uh, size and scale? Because to go back to your point about dot com stocks, I mean, everyone thought Yahoo was going to be the winner, and actually, in the end, it was it was Google and Amazon. So, how do you know you're betting on the right horse at this moment? Well, Amazon is is the fastest network to grow to a trillion dollars in market value in the history of the world. Yeah, but back then we thought Yahoo was going to be the winner. That's my point. We didn't know back then necessarily that Amazon was going to be the winner. I just I don't understand today why we can be so sure that Bitcoin's the winner. I, I'm just asking. There's that not question. really help me understand. There's no historic precedent for a network that got to hundreds of billions of dollars that was 50 times bigger than its next best competitor ever failing. I mean, it, you you could have predicted Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple as being successful by 2010 because they had already dominated their markets, but they had a decade of growth ahead of them. Bitcoin is more dominant today than any of those companies were when they started their run. Are you saying the technology is superior too? It is. The architecture is is superior. If what you want to do is save money and give it to your children and your grandchildren, then you need something that's sound. And sound starts with thermodynamically sound. So the proof-of-work architecture is, is by far the best architecture to design something that will be decentralized and secure and maintain its integrity over long periods of time. We can make something more energy efficient, but the price we pay is we give up the political support of the jurisdictions that run the mining, and we give up the thermodynamic soundness, and we make it a permissioned network where, where someone and somebody can decide who gets to participate. Bitcoin is open, sound money for the entire world. Everybody gets to participate. It's rules, but there's no rulers. And that makes a big difference. So that's interesting. So that leads me to the conversation that you had with Elon Musk and some of the biggest Bitcoin miners, because there were a lot of people after that that said, hey, we weren't party to the conversation. You're a huge player because you have so much Bitcoin on on your balance sheet and are open about it. Elon Musk can, can move prices. Obviously, the miners are a vital part of this as well. Michael, what does that represent? What does that call represent? And how is that going to change the industry? And would you do things differently if you could? Elon Elon believes in the power of sound money, and he believes in the power of a crypto asset network, and he believes in Bitcoin. Uh, he also is enthusiastic about making the world green and, and, and promoting sustainable energy. Uh, the Bitcoin miners believe the same thing. I believe the same thing. We want to be the good guys here. So we met with Elon uh, in order to understand how we could do that uh, together better. And we wanted to communicate what's really going on in the Bitcoin mining world. And I think the most important thing to know about Bitcoin mining is it's the most valuable use of, of sustainable energy in the world right now. There is no better application or more valuable application for sustainable energy than Bitcoin. It's also the largest energy recycler on Earth today. And people don't know that. I mean, the third thing they don't know is that the most energy efficient major industry in the world today. Nobody knows that. And we need to communicate that. And finally, it's a very sophisticated industry, but it's getting 10 times more energy efficient in the coming few years. And so those four stories, they're not out there in the, in the mainstream media. 
we wanted to talk with Elon about how to how to communicate our message and then also talk about how we could become more transparent in the energy usage and the efficiency of the Bitcoin mining network, because it, it's a it's a great thing that's going on. We want to share it with the world. There will be proponents of other crypto assets that will be screaming as they watch this interview if I don't push back on some of those statistics but or facts. But what I want to talk to you about is what we're seeing in China and actually just the news from Iran as well with the, the challenges they're having with their electricity grid. How quickly do you think perhaps mining, which tends to be and we believe is far dirtier, that goes on in China and places like Iran, how quickly do you think that shifts out of those nations and comes to places where it is far more easy perhaps to use more new renewable sources of energy to, to power these computers? You know, I, I think the industry is maturing. There, there is clean renewable energy in China through their hydroelectric dams and, and it's a great uh, success story. We're using energy coming off of dams that otherwise would have been wasted and lost forever to the world. There is dirty coal in China. The Chinese have their own environmental goals and they're working to clean up all of their emissions. And so it's not surprising to me that that they're driving for clean energy. Uh, in Iran, the story is they're shutting down illegal Bitcoin miners and they're supporting legal Bitcoin miners. It's just a, a regularization or normalization of the industry. And I, I think that there's a dynamic where a lot of hash power will come to the U.S. and will come to other parts of the world. The network is fault tolerant. And so it's going to adjust. And clearly, as expensive, dirty energy comes offline, more and more of the hash power switches to, to clean, sustainable energy. And that's a great thing. And any jurisdiction that doesn't support mining will drive the hash power to the jurisdictions that do support mining. Bitcoin is a solution to anybody that has cheap renewable energy but doesn't have a customer for it and bitcoin is the greatest customer for renewable energy in the world in the history of the world wow there's definitely a lot of custom i agree with you on that point michael very quickly throughout this period of volatility did any shareholder did any board member turn around to you and go michael what have you done to us our shareholders are delighted our stock was trading at $120 a share before we announced our Bitcoin strategy. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> On a You're bad right. day, it's up 4x <laughs> over where it was before we went down this path. Yes. Bitcoin is hope for 8 billion people and it's hope for every company on Earth. It's a good thing. It's recycling stranded energy. It's revitalizing companies and, and it's revitalizing investment portfolios. There's some volatility that comes with it, but again, Volatility gives us vitality. It's a great technology in order to convert energy into prosperity. Vitality and a bit of stress and uh, accelerated heartbeats as well at times. Michael, great to have you with us. Michael Saylor, the CEO of MicroStrategy. Always great to talk to you. Thank you. All right, after the break, setting up a new airline. Well, it's a breeze, or is it? We're live in Florida ahead of this new carrier's first commercial flight. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. A new airline takes to the skies today in the United States. Breeze Airways sprang to life mid-pandemic in hopes to carve a niche into the domestic leisure market just as demand rebounds. Breeze will be flying out of smaller eastern cities instead of major hubs. There will be 16 non-stop routes and the promise of low fares and friendly service. 
David Nealman is CEO and founder of Breeze Airways. He also founded JetBlue and WestJet, among others, and he's at Tampa Airport in Florida, where the first Breeze flight will take off in the next hour. David, great to have you with us. Congratulations. Um, As I mentioned there, you have a lot of experience doing this. How is it like and what's it like to build this kind of business in a pandemic? You know, it's, uh, you know, obviously none of us are happy about the pandemic, but coming out of the pandemic and in the United States, we have a good vaccine program. People have been vaccinated. Travel is really on the rebound. You know, Tampa Airport, where I am today, says that they'll be back to normal by August, uh, pre-pandemic levels. So I think our timing is just perfect. And, you know, so we're launching 16 cities and not 16 routes, 16 cities, 39 different routes uh, over the course of the summer. So for fares as low as $39. So we're really excited about it. We think it's going to it's gonna do great. And, you know, even with all the circumstances, our timing couldn't be better. And you've tried to identify and have, it seems, a gap in the market. I read that 95% of the routes that you're going to take currently have no airline servicing them nonstop. That's correct. Um, wow. You know, we, we're telling people we can get you there at least twice as fast for about half the price. So got fares starting at $39. And, uh, you know, the, the flight could, you know, maybe an hour and 15 minute flight instead of connecting through a hub that could take you up to three hours. So it's it's a, you know, in this model, we, we hoped and Ryanair has done this in Europe and I'm very familiar with what they've done and, and other carriers where you can stimulate traffic. And some of these markets, we expect will stimulate traffic 10 to 20 times over the current levels. How are you going to do it, though, at half the price? Well, because we're just more efficient. You know, if, if you can go nonstop between two destinations, you know, aircraft prices uh, have come down after the pandemic. So we've got a great deal on airplanes. Um, we also don't have to go up to a hub and have all the costs of doing that. We just go uh, go nonstop. So we, we eliminate a lot of the costs. And then we're a new airline. So we started with a clean white piece of paper. I say we're a technology company that just happens to fly airplanes. So really great app. We don't need big call centers and all that stuff. So. Um, you know, we've been able to kind of do this from the ground up with a really low cost operation, but really uh, high quality that our customers are going to love. What about flexibility as well, David? I was looking at the app. What happens if you need to cancel your flight, if you want to change it? How easy have you made that as a seriously nice, quote, airline? Yeah, so, you know, unlike the other ULCCs, um, we're not charging any change fees. Uh, so you can just, if you want to, if you buy a $39 ticket, you want to cancel it, you'll have that 30, full $39 credit to use anytime you want. If you want to move it to a $59 fare, just give us the, the difference in fare. So we don't have any change fees. We do charge for bags $20 like everybody else does, actually less than everybody else does. But uh, you know, we want to make it seamless and simple and we don't want to irritate our customers. We want them to come back and fly us again and tell all their friends. If I have to find some criticism of, of, of that's been made of you already, it's what you're paying pilots. Are you uh, being opportunistic at a time when a lot of pilots have lost their jobs to actually pay them less? Absolutely not. I don't know where you got that from, but uh, we're, we're paying more than the regional airlines pay, and that's why we have an abundance of pilots wanting to fly with us. We, we aren't hiring any pilots from any airline that's been furloughed because we ex- you know, expect they'll go back there, and so we're not hiring from them. We're hiring from the, we've got a great uh, cadre of pilots from the regional fleet and we're paying more than that. So they're more than willing to come in and work at Breeze and they're happy to be here. Okay, that's good to hear. And what about protecting customers? What about protecting your staff just in the interim as we transition out? Any rules over mask wearing, of testing? 
Well, obviously, in the U.S., you've got to wear a mask uh, on airplanes and airports. Hopefully, that 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 change will 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 come out quickly for vaccinated people. Uh, you know, now in the U.S., you don't have to wear a mask in any other place but public transportation or on a, on an airplane uh, if you've been vaccinated. So, I'm sh- they're looking at changing that, and hopefully, that will change soon because there's no reason why vaccinated people should have to to wear masks if, just because some people don't want to get vaccinated. That. We want to live our lives, and, and if we've gone to the effort, like I have, to be vaccinated, and we're safe, then we should, you know, not have to deal with masks on airplanes or anywhere else. Does that employ, uh, apply to employees as well? Do new employees have to be vaccinated, David? Well, yeah, I mean, I think, it, you know, we, we've, it's a personal choice. Uh, people, you know, it's, at some point in time, personal responsibility takes over, and, uh, you know, if, if, I'm, if I'm concerned about getting uh, the COVID virus, then I'll go get a vaccine, and you know I think that's the way we gotta we gotta treat people. Uh, you know, with mandates don't work, but those that are concerned, I think it's a much better policy. And and most people are being vaccinated, so I expect that the, the you know in places other places, uh, you know the the disease will wean once you get a level of vaccines that we have in the United States. David, very quickly, how exciting is today? It's real exciting. It's my fifth <laughs> airline. Uh, you know. I've, I've started, uh, like you said, WestJet, and I had an airline uh, in the western part of the United States, and, and JetBlue, and Azul in Brazil. And so it's, it's an exciting time for everyone here at the company. Never gets old. David, great to have you with us. Congratulations and good Thank luck. Thank you very much. David Nealman, okay. CEO and founder of Breeze Airways there. Okay, now to some breaking news. Australian Airlines has cancelled a flight from Vienna to Moscow after Russia failed to approve a route change that would allow it to bypass Belarusian airspace. On Wednesday, Air France cancelled a flight to and from Moscow, citing similar reasons. You're watching First Move. There's more to come. Welcome back to the show. And finally, the epic TV comedy Friends came off the air 17 years ago. Well, you may have heard they're getting back together. They may be older. They're certainly a lot richer. And this two-hour reunion show is a love letter to the fans. The Big Friends reunion show is on HBO Max, which is part of the CNN family. And yes, I demand to know Jennifer Anderson's skincare routine and her hairdresser, of course, too. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. Stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow and connect the world with Becky Anderson. What's next? When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.